everyone and welcome to Alafia Voices of the African Diaspora. I am Buki Domingos. And I'm Darwin Fisherman. And we are your hosts. And uh, thank you for joining us. And I am thrilled that we have, I always like to affectionately refer to you as my former student um, from UDC Community College. Uh, so What is Alex, UDC? I'm not from there. University of District of Columbia. In fact, we could do a whole show about the community college in uh, Washington, D.C. A fun fact, Washington, D.C. was the largest city in the U.S. that did not have its own community college. We were literally history. We were there at the first community college formed in Washington, D.C. Um, and this was just, what, 10 years ago, roughly? Yes, yeah. 2010, 2011. Goodness, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, and, and I always like to do things of uh, introducing Alex. Alex had a different name when I knew him back then and uh, different sexuality. So that's always uh, makes for a great party joke thing. Um, so, I, and that's just a great setup to turn over to you, Alex, during to let you introduce yourself. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite I, student. Yeah. <laughs> I am Alex Fury. Um, my first name actually is a funny story. Um, Jason means the healer. Um, Alexander means the helper of people. So uh, I always tell people when um, I met Dr. Fishman, I was doing a lot of musical things. And uh, since music heals, I felt like Jason was fitting for that. Alexander means the helper of people. And so when I decided to transition into politics, um, I started going by Alex. Um, when people call me Alex, it reminds me that I'm here to help people um, through policy. Um, so that's why I go by Alex now. Um, again, I transitioned to the politics uh, around 2008 um, with Barack Obama doing his uh, run for political office um, uh, for president specifically. And so um, I transitioned to that and kind of left music behind. Um, and that's when I met Dr. Uh, Fishman um, trying to run for office uh, at uh, the University of the District of Columbia, uh, running to be the president of the first president of uh, the community yeah. college uh, there. Um, I did not necessarily win, um, but it was a great learning experience for me. Uh, was it that bad? You're laughing. Well, you know, I was a musician, and then I don't think I really understood that politics really is about uh, name recognition and personality. And uh, one of the things that I'm learning even now, people really don't pay attention to policy. People look at you and, and think, do you uh, look like me, or can I see myself in you? Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I didn't understand that. I thought that just being the most knowledgeable about policy would win me that race. But I'm digressing. Um, yeah, since then I've worked for the, the school district of Pennsylvania, the chancellor's office. Um, I've been elected here um, in the city of Philadelphia. I've had great mentors uh, here in the city. Uh, I ran for state representative as an openly gay candidate. It was funny that he was saying I wasn't necessarily I was I was I was gay then, but I was going under the the, the veil of bisexual, and it wasn't something that I kind of told everybody. So. Yeah. Um, since then, um, about two or maybe three years ago, I came out as openly gay and actually it was one of the best decisions that I made in my life um, to actually do that. It helped me a lot um, in moving forward in life, um, oddly enough. So um, yeah, uh, that's pretty much my past. I mean, I've done a lot politically. I've done a lot to try to help my community. Um, 
so yeah that's that's where we are now the liberal <laughs> yeah nice so um tell us about um the political climate where you are how is it because I, I i like to compare <clears throat> the east coast with the west side SoCal, where people are, because you're in Philly. I've been to Philly. I I love it there. Went to a feminist organizing school several years ago. It's really nice. And so just tell us about how it is in Philly. Oh, wow. So from what I gather, Philadelphia is a very interesting situation. I think it's a very conservative, liberal city. Um, And I think that's pretty much, I mean, it's the whole modern Democrat type mentality. And I think you have uh, this a lot in a lot of cities where um, people tend to be somewhat socially liberal, um, but economically um, conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so where, you know, you know, they were saying, oh, yeah, we, we're okay with gays, uh, we are okay with, um, we, we may be okay with women leading organizations um, and some spaces that are really surprising where you would talk about maybe giving universal health care or you'll talk about um, some of these more liberal policies like pay off all student loan debt. Um, people kind of cringe at that. And you would think in spaces that have been traditionally uh, democratic, uh, for long periods of time, they would be more so open to those ideas and willing to push agendas that do that. I think that a lot of people kind of are reserved about some of those things. Um, and I think specifically because, I mean, for long periods of time, people have been told what can and cannot happen. And I think sometimes, too, um, people also have some of their own, um, some of their own uh, stereotypes or beliefs around other people. Um, somebody may have this distant cousin that they've heard about or may have had a bad experience with one person and then they paid a wide brush and make it a general idea about people and that's how they kind of drive their politics. Um, so like I say, you'll have these, these these social liberal pockets of, of people who are democratic and then they'll also have some of these conservative views um, that they used to vote with and I think that that kind of describes Philadelphia. Um, you have to also think too that Philadelphia is a very blue collar city, right? And so we're not talking about a whole bunch of academics here. Um, while Philadelphia is a, a city that has a lot of colleges and universities, um, a lot of the people who are educated come here for the education. They're not necessarily raised here into the education, if that makes sense. Um, the educational system here in the city um, tends to be uh, a little subpar. Um, as it relates to other areas around it. Um, and so, I mean, knowing that, I mean, the education levels here in the city aren't that high. So you're not gonna have a whole bunch of, of all these highly informed voters. Like I said, they're gonna kind of go based off of the identity of the person that they see. And uh, and they will also go based off of uh, listening to people who they respect in politics. So it's not necessarily that person is extremely knowledgeable. People just respect them because of some sort of an act that they may have done in the past that they respected. So say this person has given a lot of turkeys out to a whole bunch of families, or um, this person is connected to some sort of organization that they felt did good in the community. Those are the people that they kind of lift up to represent them in government 
when that person may have no clue about specific policies that will make their lives better. So that's kind of the, the general take, my general take on politics, and sometimes people find that to be offensive because when you challenge people's belief systems around politics or even religion, um, those are the types of things that they kind of follow blindly and that kind of shapes their whole uh, foundation of what they believe in. Um, so it's kind of difficult to have some of these real conversations with people because politics design and religion are kind of, you're either good or bad in people's eyes. And a lot of times there's not that much gray area. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my synopsis yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, no, no that's, a, that's a good discussion to have. And I'll do my part about the introduction to Philly. And again, as an outsider, I was there for two years. And I was in the Africana Studies Department, which is the mothership for black studies departments. It was the first one to get a doctoral program. Um, and Asante is there, and it's funny, Asante is not only there, like he literally has his own floor. Um, it's different from the department. Um, so I got to work with him and others. But it was really interesting, like the politics at Temple University. And I don't know if we ever talked about this, but like I was actually um, really intrigued by one is that um, a lot of the black staff that work there, well it's mostly black staff that work there, it's almost like a southern thing. Uh, and then it was really interesting because most of the students are white. Uh, and Temple University is one of the largest universities on the East Coast, um, public. And most people you know, say everything is private. And then was, one of the things I really found fascinating is that when I looked into it, you know uh, Temple University has the third largest police force in the state of Pennsylvania, only behind Philadelphia and Pencil, uh, uh, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh. Why? So the white students come in there and they've got to be protected. And then I started talking to black faculty about it. You know what they told me? One of the things they told me about with the university is that, like the example of how deep this is, and this is why Philly, like following what you're saying, there's a whole lot of contradictions within contradictions and contradictions there. Temple, you know that split, uh, I want to say Market Street, that for Temple University, um, there's that main street that splits it. You know, Temple, when it uh, snows, they only do the snow removal on the Temple side. The other side is basically the black community. So They can all die. Right. They're having to, like, their services, like, <laughs> literally, it's not the black community, and literally the police oh force gosh. is there to protect from the black community on the other side. They've got literally these bubbles, uh, they, they call them these security bubbles all over campus. It's really fascinating because you can feel all those tensions. And if you literally walk off of Temple University for five minutes, it's like literally going back in time, like pavement stops, concrete is gone, the buildings are blown out, uh, and you know, Temple's is like a lavish university. Uh, to me, that's like a microcosm of what's going on in Philadelphia with all like the tensions and issues, uh, the complexity there. Damn. Yeah. I will tell you this, and I mean, and this is one of the things that I learned is, is that universities are an issue uh, in a lot of communities, right? where you have uh, universities that were planned in spaces that were kind of like underserved. And so you see these large expansions of these, you even see that Howard down in DC where Howard was just smack dab in the middle of the ghetto. Um, And as the university expanded, it was taking up land all around it. So you just walk maybe two blocks off and you would dab right in it, like in the hood. Like I wasn't allowed to like walk uh, so far. outside of Temple's campus when I first got there, that was 2001, uh, they told me not to go to U Street because it was it was the ghetto. Wow. Um, and you see U Street now, right? Yeah, yeah, um, gentrified, like, yep. All around Temple, like how yeah. University is gentrified. And you see that that's, a, that's an issue not only as 
in Philadelphia. I mean, just because I live in Philadelphia, I see it yeah. every day. Right. But that's something that happens all around the country where you have large universities, these large institutions uh, buying up land um, and traditionally maybe African-American or traditionally underserved communities that are centered around it and they are just causing the gentrification process to be on steroids around um, those spaces. So instead of having to invest in those communities, they invest in the university and the university um, just uh, expands. And so it's not shown negatively on the, the government, it's quote unquote shown negatively on the university. Um, but yeah, that's a different, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> you talk yeah. about uh, the woes of education, of higher education at that. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think um, uh, as far as the Temple University thing, um, I was just actually, I had a talk um, and there was a, a lady that uh, there's this whole group that was created around trying to kind of curtail the university's gentrification efforts in the city of Philadelphia. They're called the Stadium Stoppers. Um, the university was trying to build a 40,000 uh, uh, stadium, a 40,000 seat stadium right really? in the middle of uh, right on Broad Street, but like right Broad in the Street. middle of the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and they were trying to say that it was going to bring jobs and all this kind of stuff. But then you start having the conversation of like what type of jobs is it going to bring? What type of noise pollution is it going to bring? We have tra- trash issues in the city. Like well, who is going to be responsible for all this cleanup in the neighborhoods? Um, you know, the places that aren't well lit around the stadium and how is that going to look? Um, and so like all these conversations surrounding um, the university pushing into the community and disenfranchising the people there, um, even about the police force. And that was something new for me. I didn't even recognize that Toby University has such a large police force um, yeah. rivaling only the, the state. The city, <laughs> yeah, and Philly and, 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 and city Pittsburgh. City yeah. Force, that's Experience I remember that uh, you appreciate, uh, Alex, uh, is uh, teaching classes. Uh, I got in touch with former Mayor Street, and he came in as one of the guest lecturers. And one of the things for people that don't know is, and I remember this when I wasn't even in Philly, is Mayor Street found bugs in his office that were put there by the FBI. Um, it doesn't have Philly also doesn't have a good history with uh, how black mayors are treated. And they were trying to, again, get him for the scandal. And I heard about the whole thing about they got, like, his relatives and friends, but they could never get him. And um, it's a really powerful voice, powerful speaker. Um, But that was another one of my uh, real key moments there uh, at the Temple. Yeah, Philadelphia politics is a a crazy beast. Um, There is a lot of corruption. I uh, never want to put that past. Uh, yeah. The government here in the city. I mean, actually, uh, the FBI does more for the turnover of the politicians than the actual electorate 
here in the city of Philadelphia. We've yeah. seen politicians yeah. go down just in the time that I, I've seen plenty of uh, congressmen here go down. Yeah. Um, I've seen a uh, whole sweep of state reps go down um, for money uh, scandals and issues. Um, this city has its share of a scandal as it relates to corruption in our government. Um, street specifically, uh, he was uh, he's somebody that I definitely looked up to for a, a, a long time here in the city of Philadelphia, um, and um, his his time and his influence um, definitely influenced uh, uh, my path in politics here in the city. Um, was actually quite savvy uh, as it related to kind of navigating the FBI probes that. Uh, that uh, he, he encountered, and he was able to actually get through his term unscathed. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, <laughs> yeah, he uh, never was able to hand anything on him. And um, Street uh, was a very influential mayor here. He was uh, the, he was the leader of the council for a while um, yeah. in the city. I think he, he did like 17 years at the city council before he even became the mayor in the 90s. And he uh, did a lot of change as far as um, um, making sure that the, that the air drug markets uh, here were cleaned up and tried to do a lot in, in curbing the, uh, the drug uh, situation here in the city, um, which I have my agreements and disagreements about. I think that the way people view drugs in the past was kind of toxic towards uh, underserved communities. And, we kind of see the remnants of that today where we have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population here in this country. And right. two-thirds of that is brown and black people. Um, and that that's kind of a little bit of my issue with our current nominees for the Democratic Party. But yeah. uh, I, I, that, that, that takes me into a whole different uh, space. But yeah, um, our city has a very, very uh, a crazy uh, situation with corruption and politics. But I think that that's something in any city where you have one party ruling for a long time. I think the Democratic Party has been ruling in the city for almost 50 years now. Um, anytime you have one party controlling the government, um, there's going to be some sort of corruption that's going to happen because people do what they have to do to stay into power. Um, and so I think that uh, it's always good to have competing voices in government that can kind of check uh, people in power. That was a long amount of <laughs> but isn't that politics in general like anywhere in the world you go there is some kind of corruption and that's always a given but the issue is how corrupt is it and how much does it hurt the people that they're supposed to be served there's always something shady going on it doesn't matter in the best of countries there is still where human beings exist actually there's always something that is not necessarily okay and I guess that's the issue with 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 the U.S. is it's just it's getting out of hand. Um, well, I think I think it's a generational. I mean, well, it may not even be a generational issue. I'm not even sure of what to call it. Uh, <laughs> I think that, uh, it's uh, messed up. That's what it is. Is less tolerant of the past of politicians. Um, I think right now in our information age, we're able to connect policy to um, outcome. Um, and we're able to do it a lot quicker because our cell phones are computers in our hands. And so if we want to know the history of something, it takes all of five minutes to Google it or go through some sort of a search engine and find out information. Um, we can see now the direct effects of the crime bill of the 1990s. 
we can see the direct effects of the redlining and stuff like that and make those connections mm-hmm. in a matter of minutes, right? Get yeah. good in-depth research from different sources and try to figure those things out. And I think the young people of today who have access to more information uh, have a different outlook on how we see our politicians. Uh, we're not as forgiving as people who are or were uh, ahead of us. Um, Just because we have much more information at our fingertips. I mean, but, what what is really classified nowadays? You can find it online. But can you get, let's do the uplifting part for Philly for a minute. Uh, can you talk about DA Larry Krasner. So in a sense, give us some hope. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, Philly. We like doom and gloom. Yeah. So Larry Krasner was a liberal. I remember, uh, and it was funny because I was working on another campaign, um, <laughs> working on a campaign that was actually going against his during the primary. Um, but I was secretly supporting him, and I was asked to actually work on this campaign, but I didn't think he was going to have a chance. Wow. Um, so I backed away from it. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, state loyalty campaign, which I, I see now in hindsight was kind of a bad idea. I should have jumped on the bandwagon when I had a chance. Um, but no, every once in a while you get somebody who comes in and disrupts the system. Um, and usually those that's very, very difficult to do, especially in um, large cities that have a very, very strong establishment and machine. Um, but he was able to come in and, and bring in a whole bunch of new voters. I mean, uh, the, the next generation um, is learning how to organize. I mean, we see that even with Bernie Sanders coming in, where we're learning how to make our voices heard in spaces that have been traditionally able to mute those voices and kind of um, um, dismiss them. Um, and so, you know, yeah, we were able to get somebody like Larry Krasner. And I will always say this, I mean, the time kind of dictates what is radical, right? Um, because who knows, maybe in the next 20 years, Larry Krasner might be somebody who was, they, who people may think is very aggressive and doesn't have uh, progressive policies. But for his time right now, he has very aggressive policies where he was saying we need to get rid of cash bail. Um, he was talking about um, changing the way that uh, the, the government um, prosecutes people uh, for drug charges or like uh, kind of changing the way we look at um, how uh, we prosecute um, uh, how we prosecute people who may have been charged wrongfully by police officers or even looking at police officers who have histories of bad policing um, habits. Um, Larry Krasner came in with these quote-unquote revolutionary ideas, and I mean, we were able to see our voting actually double that year, where we was like, we were only seeing like maybe 7% of the city, and please don't vote on these, and we saw something like 18% that year. So it was like a big wave uh, that happened that year, and it was exciting, and it was actually coming on the heels of the election of Donald Trump. So like, I have to think that people were excited. I mean, even my sister, who is like about six years younger than me, um, when she found out Donald Trump got elected, I mean, she was out with science talking about Black Lives Matter. And I was so proud of that. I was like, yes, <laughs> the, rev- the revolution is about to be televised now. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, going yeah. to be shown on our phone. Um, so yeah, it, it, we do see like uh, little glimpses of hope uh, happening now that Donald Trump is doing some of the things he's doing, like even this last uh, uh, protest that happened around George Floyd, you know, I mean, the perfect storms are happening, and because we have technology that inter- uh, that, that gets us all intertwined and we are more connected with each other, things are able to happen a lot quicker, um, and people are being able to be enlightened a lot faster. So, I mean, yeah, those are the glimpses of hope that we see 
um, during this time. Uh, that want to segue in. Uh, and we've kind of hinted at this, but you want to talk about Senator Kamala Harris being added to the ticket, and you're going to go with the thing about Howard University sister and beautiful moment. You're going to talk about policy, critique criminal justice, both. So, you know, I, I, I always say certain things are genius. Like, for instance, I said for John McCain, who was absolutely genius for him to think Sarah Palin as his vice president, so I need to kind of combat the fact that it was going to be a, um, a monumental election for the Democrats to have Barack Obama be the president. So we needed some way to kind of bring that historical precedent in, right? We'll probably bring in some women because it's a woman, and people will kind of be torn between it. They would think about it at least, right, uh, before they, they made a choice. And so I think that uh, back forward to Joe Biden choosing Kamala Harris, who was that same thing for me. I have never been a fan of uh, Joe Biden. Um, and uh, even as I became more knowledgeable about politics, because you have to understand that I came into politics with Barack Obama. Barack Obama was my first vote. Yeah. Um, election-wise, um, I had no care about politics until that. And, and the funny thing was, I was actually introduced to Barack Obama when he first became a U.S. senator, sitting on the stage at Howard University and seeing him come to the university and speaking at our convocation. And even then, I wasn't even aware of what was happening in that moment. Um, so fast forward to 2008, and Barack Obama was running for president, and I'm being introduced to him. I fell in love with Barack Obama. Um, his speech in North Carolina after he had won the state. And I mean, if I was aware as I am now about politics, I probably would have not been a Barack Obama fan um, because Barack Obama was a moderate who uh, dressed in um, liberal clothes. Um, and so to me at that time, I was really swept up into Barack Obama's identity. Um, and I think that's where we were having that conversation around identity. It, is what is more important, is the person's identity or the person's policies. And I think because a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of politics the way they should be, they they buy into the identity. And that's where I feel like Joe Biden was genius in this space where yeah. he chose a black woman, a black woman who was more ingrained in politics than Barack Obama. Barack Obama was raised by a white woman and went to all white institutions. Barack Obama, when he moved to Chicago, had to learn about black culture. Yeah. Uh, Barack Obama was not a child of slaves, and so he really didn't have a connection. And he also dated white women um, before he came to Chicago. Once he learned about the African American culture, he realized that he needed a black woman um, to kind of validate or kind of speak to his blackness. Um, you read it inside his book, The Audacity of Folk, where he said that he learned, he listened to uh, jazz music. Um, he moved to the hood. He joined the black churches to learn how to organize and become ingrained in the black community. And so, you know, Barack Obama, all that stuff for him was learned. And the fact that he was able to bring in a child of the slave, uh, the, the gym of the South Side of Chicago, and he was able to tie himself to that and reproduce with that, uh, created this black family was what was a part of Barack Obama's saving grace because there was a huge dispute of him not being a child of the slave and not really understanding African-American culture. And so we fast forward now to Kamala Harris, who is uh, a child of immigrants, um, one of uh, Indian 
yeah. um, background and Jamaican background, right? Yeah. Um, and she was raised in Oakland, I believe. That's where it was. And uh, she went to Howard University, which is a huge institution um, in the black community, and also joined uh, the sorority, AKA, which was actually started at Howard University and was the first African-American um, sorority. Um, so, like, those are big deals. So she's more ingrained in the African-American community than Barack Obama was yeah. and understands the history of African-Americans more so than Barack Obama did. Um, and we can, we can kind of debate the childhood slave thing because I'm assuming since her father was Jamaican, um, his ancestors come from slaves. Uh, yeah. Um, so you can, you, can, you can kind of have that discussion. Um, but anyway, moving forward, uh, we have Pamela Harris coming in. And so she's coming from... Um, California, which is one of the most liberal states in our union, um, but she parades as a moderate. You know, you have her talking about, um, she came up through the line of policing, and, and we're, we're during this time where we're talking about George Floyd, um, and we're talking about police systems and how they need to be revolutionized, and this woman uh, has a history of, uh, of locking people up in the prison. I heard that uh, the convictions went up by 18%. what you're saying and I really appreciate it. announcement in between. You're listening to a lot of voices of the African diaspora and we are live on Facebook. We have here Alex Deering, um, I'm looking at Mingos and Dr. Fishman. And now we are looking into our Senator, Kamala Harris. And um, if she's black enough to be the, the VP, right? Well, so, but, uh, so, but also, I want to, uh, yeah, but I, I want to, because you just said the thing about Larry Krasner, of course, we want to make sure people are following this. That's a white man. So we, we also have to talk about in terms of, especially with the criminal justice system and having positions like DA, that's much harder for black folks. And the truth is, of course, we know that quote black reformers or radicals, they don't get there. In fact, most of the black folks that historically have gone to those kind of positions have been the ones that have been the most conservative. So that we just... I want to add that for the background. Okay, so now I I would love to have the floor to speak. First of all, first of all, I've always been a Kamala Harris fan. Period. And second, um, I am also of the opinion that there were other black women who are very involved in politics that could have been chosen to be VP and not Kamala Harris. But here is my issue. I'm also not a Joe Biden fan. I never was. And I also believe that America can do better. They can find a man of a certain age, like the age Barack Obama was. We don't need, I, and I, it might sound like I'm throwing the ages in the script, 
but we can definitely find people that are at least 20 years younger. Like, give me a ben Bernie Sanders that's 20 years younger, and that will be amazing, for example. You, you see, you know what I'm, I'm driving at, but my issue is we're dealing with Trumpisms, and I'm saying Trumpisms because the issues that the U.S. is facing did not start with Donald Trump. Anybody who thinks that is, they lost their minds. It's become much more visible with Donald Trump because people are empowered and emboldened to do certain things in public that they wouldn't have gotten away with before. But the issue with Kamala remains. Are we all going to be tied up into, oh my gosh, she put a lot of people behind bars, which is true. Oh my gosh, she did such and such and such and that's just horrible. Or are we just going to get behind Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, rock the vote so that when it does get to the Electoral College, there is no dispute that these two will be the next president and VP and get Trump out of office? Or are we just going to keep playing these games where the votes could be so shaky, where we don't know, and then we have another four years of Trump? Because believe it or not, it's not impossible. So this is, this is what, what I'm seeing from the outside looking in. That if folks do not take this seriously, to seriously vote him out of office, he will be there another four years. And this is why people need to get away from, oh my gosh, Joe Biden, Jesus, Miss Harris, good grief. Like, stand behind him so we can get this person out of there. So we can hopefully move forward and remove all this shame and embarrassment that the last four years has brought this country. So... That's a very interesting analysis, and, and, and I always compare it to like this. Um, so we're having this conversation amongst other Democrats, right? And it's almost sort of like a family. In the family, we're going to see clearly the issues within the family, right? And I think sometimes traditionally, specifically in the black family, and I can only speak to the black family because clearly. <laughs> you is <laughs> black. Right. But, like, I mean, one of the issues that we've seen in the black family is that we have problems with things that are wrong and then fixing those things that are wrong right yeah. what we do is to say oh yeah we know it's wrong we know it's bad get over it let's move forward and when those things happen the things continue to be a problem and never get fixed i mean we're looking at the election right at this time in the election uh in 2016 um about one third of the population still uh supported and strongly supported trump and uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was not that far ahead of uh, Donald Trump. And we are actually, the, the statistics and the numbers are still the exact same now. And it's funny to me that it would even be that way coming out of a recession and a pandemic that was hardly handled by the administration. Why does Donald Trump still have the same amount of support he had in 2016 at this time? So we're still looking at an election where Trump has the ability to slide through and win still. Yeah. Um, and so you would think that the Democrats would come up with some sort of a different strategy, but we're still having this conversation. Yeah, we understand that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris may not necessarily be that great, but Joe and, and, and Kamala, Kamala are the lesser of the two evils. Why are we still choosing between the lesser two evils? Why are we still saying, oh, we should just vote for them because Trump is so bad? Why is that still a retort? Because it's the it's the candidates that they put that's forward. A, that's uh, but but that's easy to answer. I mean, all you have to do is look at, for example, just take something as simple as Congresswoman Bass from LA. I actually looked at um, Breitbart, the Republican 
they were referring to her as Comrade Bass. If he, quote-unquote, got a more leftist person, uh, like a black woman like Bass, that would have sucked in all the energy because you would have had to defend um, her comments, for example, about Fidel Castro and calling him Hefe. I'm serious. The Republicans would have made it about that. And the thing is, is obviously, from if you think about it from Biden's standpoint, I mean, you can disagree or agree with it, but I certainly, from his standpoint, I would go with the quote-unquote more moderate black woman, so you're not trying to defend that. And the thing is, what you see now, that's why the Republicans look so nutty, is that they want to criticize Kamala as being this leftist communist, but on the other thing, they're trying to do this thing of that she's too harsh on black people. And like the Republicans now are going to be the arbiter of uh, a prosecutor being too harsh on black people. Like they don't literally figure out how to criticize her yet. So if you think about it from that standpoint, that, that logic makes sense uh, for why Biden did what he did. That and the other thing people I want to talk about, the other thing I, I knew that Kamala was going to be selected because of the money. Obviously, the over $40 million they brought in the last two days, I mean, no other, I mean, we're going to be honest, no other black woman could have brought in over $40 million, except for Oprah. I mean, you know. Well, they were looking at Kamala as the next in line anyway, so when Hillary, uh, when Kamala jumped into the race, a lot of the Hillary donors were looking at Kamala to kind of see if she was going to be the person they were going to look to make that, that, that next person. Um, but at the end of the day, like when you have a conversation around Kamala and what her support was, it was the suburban whites. Um, it was never really African Americans. Because at the end of the day, if the African Americans overwhelmingly support Kamala, Kamala Harris, uh, she would have been like Barack Obama, who would have threw Joe Biden under the bus, and we would have all been voting for Kamala, and she would have been the nominee. I mean, it was the same way that happened with Barack Obama, with Hillary Clinton. But black folks were supporting Biden. Obama, and they threw Hillary under the bus. Barack Obama became our president. So if black people liked Kamala Harris as much as they're trying to act like they do. They should have gone behind her sooner. Exactly. The problem is is that black people, and, 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 I, and I hate to say this, but you want to talk about the black activists, and you want to talk about the people who do the real work, they all supported Bernie Sanders. None of them will really supported Kamala. They're all sitting in her places now simply because she's the nominee, and it's kind of, we're put in a very weird position right now. Well, because we don't support Kamala's uh, policies at all, mm-hmm. uh, because she's very moderate to be coming from a state that is extremely liberal. She was against marijuana. I mean, she offended the trans uh, people in um, our country, and uh, she's been looked at as a cop, which is kind of sure. weird to, to black people. Um, I am completely, I've never prepared a Kamala man. But the fact that she went to HBCU, and that she's an AKA, mm-hmm. and that she identifies as black, um, we are all excited and I am torn because of what I will not do is tear down a black woman. I will celebrate the fact that we have an African-American in the White House that's the best president. And yeah. I will take a part in the bragging rights that I would get from being a Howard student myself and um, against Morehouse and, and the other HU that's in Virginia. Um, well, uh, <laughs> the, uh, it's, it's really HT, Hampton um, wow. Institute, HI. Wow. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, I... You know, I would join in that, but at the same time, when we're looking at her policies, like that's where my issue is. But because, like, I need student loan debt to be wiped out. Yeah, I need but, to be able to have universal health care in a, during a pandemic. I need yeah. there to be some sort of a universal basic income when people are struggling to find jobs during this time. You know, I need these policies that we were talking about that we're saying were so radical and so extra liberal to be put into place now because. Now, the inefficiencies of our government, the inefficiencies of capitalism are 
on the spotlight. And uh, we need these quote-unquote liberal radical ideas to be put in place so people can actually survive but, but that's the thing what's really fascinating because I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said but what's interesting of course is that has nothing to do with the VP the, the policy part of course really if we're going to be honest about where it's really going to be driven is actually the House and the Senate and I was just talking to someone the bigger deals is whether or not for example Pelosi is going to uh, step down if the Democrats retain the House if she's going to honor that agreement uh, and you want someone uh, younger than Bernie how about AOC? How about 40 years younger? I mean, you know, I, but I'm saying that actually the leadership of the House is going to be more of a big deal. Not that AOC is going to take over, but the Black Caucus could certainly obviously gain in strength. And the policy that's, um, I'll put it this way, ideally, if the Democrats take back the House and the Senate and the presidency, I hope that the center of power goes more with the House than it does with Biden in terms of the policy direction. I mean, that to me would be the ideal scenario. Well, one of the things I always say about the Republicans is that they're a lot better at the Democrats at bringing up young ideas um, and bringing up young people. I mean, you got to look at all the leaders of our party. They're all in their late 70s. Nancy Pelosi is the oldest of them all. Uh, is there nobody that can, you know... It's seniority. You call it no, you, you can be senior and advise people that are also... Can't, I mean, come on. No, the House and Senate is all seniority. You don't become chair until this many years. You don't become... What, until you're in a, using a walker? I mean... And you have to think about it, too. Like, I mean, a lot of these people will hold on to a time or think back to a time or have the mentality of a time that is long past. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about, like, revolutionary ideas, quote, unquote, or things that are going to cater to young people um, because that's what we need, like those things are dismissed. I mean, you have videos of Kamala and Joe Biden being dismissive of young people. Uh, Kamala calling him stupid and saying um, that's the reason why we put him in colleges where they have residential advisors in their uh, staff to keep them under control. And so, like, and these are things that they're laughing at and saying in their speeches where they're like talking about people between 18 and 24, young voters. Um, there is a <laughs> that should be your powerhouse, actually. People have about young voters, and then what they want to say outside of their mouths is that they just don't vote when they don't recognize that there are a lot of impediments to voting as a young person. When you're going to colleges and universities and you're in a state that you're not even from, it's really difficult to get uh, mailing ballots. Like, mailing ballots is kind of like a revolutionary idea, revolutionary idea. Like in Pennsylvania, you couldn't even get a mailing ballot unless you were practically about to die in your house. Other countries, it's literally stuck in the mail. When it's election season, whether you go out to vote or whatever, you have it in your mailbox. It's all in it's there. A, it was the same policy in California. It's only been the last 20 years we changed it. No, you're exactly right. Jesus. And, and so, yeah. like, and they actively curtail the young vote on college campuses in, yeah. in areas. Like, Republicans actively uh, made it difficult people on college campuses to vote because they did not want those college campuses to influence the local elections. Yeah. And so like, you I mean, you want to have these conversations about young people not voting and how they don't participate when people are actively trying to diminish and curtail the young vote anyway. So like, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, young people in politics and, and these whole conversations about how liberal we are and how quote unquote stupid we are, there is a literal, uh, uh, there's a literal campaign of disrespect that causes older voters and younger voters to go at odds anyway. And so, like, you know, 
I, I just, I really don't understand, like, um, how this country, uh, they, 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 I, 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 I really don't understand how all this works, and I guess I'm, I'm learning. Yeah, but I move along and, and really trying to figure out how to kind of bring these things yeah. together because we need the voices of AOC. We should have to have situations where um, somebody who's been in Congress for uh, a good probably 50 years has to be literally eaten alive by some young person. And then that young person gets into office and they're literally dismissed and made to feel like they're crazy or some sort of a radical because they're like now having a voice in spaces um, when they're supposed to be having allies and those same allies are looking to try to get rid of them. Yeah. Like, I mean, you have mm -hmm. AOC going into the convention and they're only giving her a 60 second spot to speak. And she was the highest raising congressperson. That is <laughs> insane. Yeah. <laughs> And she actually had, had to come up with an official speech to explain why she did It's like, what? If you want the youth, yeah. If you want the youth and the younger folks to lead the charge, because evidently you folks are, you know, ready to retire or are supposed to be retired. How do they get to do that if you don't, if you don't even want them to speak? Well, right. It's a... It but again, from their vantage point, it's obviously a balancing act because obviously the Republicans are trying to tar the Democratic Party as being AOC's party and being this radical leftist defund the police party. So it's a, I agree, she should obviously get more than a minute and hopefully they'll change that. But I also get their legitimate concerns about how they're going to be presented to you know places like Iowa and Texas in terms of the branding of the Democratic Party. And there is a generational just, split. Yeah, I get that. And let me just push back on that, though, Dr. Fishman. I mean, when you go back to 2016, you saw the polls between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders being matched up against Donald Trump. Um, Donald, I mean, Bernie Sanders would win uh, at a larger uh, place than Hillary Clinton. So yeah. this country is open to a lot of the policies. I think a lot of the times that we get confused with identity and, and actual policies. And when you put... Hillary Clinton up there. Hillary Clinton had a lot of baggage, which made her more susceptible to the attacks that Bernie Sanders did not have. And I mean, fast forward now, when you talk about Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris, um, there's a lot of baggage that Joe Biden had, not just on the Democratic side, but also on the Republican side, which makes it easier for them to attack. And I think sometimes the Democrats try to use that socialism slash communist type of stuff to put their tactics in their own party because at the end of the day, the moderates do not want to give up any type of control to the liberals in the party. And even within the party, they try to make liberals seem like they're crazy when a lot of the policies that they're talking about are policies that are attainable. The government was able to find $1,200 and additional $600 a week to give to people off the cuff all of a sudden when the Democrats were saying that it's something that could never happen that we did not have enough money for. So a lot of these policies that they're saying were out of control, that were off the chain of radical, that Bernie Sanders was putting out there was not necessarily they were out of control. Their donors were against it. And the Democratic Party is bought and paid for by a lot of corporate donors, and they have to do the bidding of the people who give them the money. I think that we need to really focus on trying to get a lot of this money out of politics, and that's one of the things that AOC and her, her the group that are coming up with her are doing. They're not taking any type of corporate money, and they're not taking money from super PACs. And I think that right there is going to cling out of our, our system. It's not necessarily um, uh, who's right or what's capable or what socialism is. I think the problem is that people are bought and sold by other donors. And as soon as we get that money out of politics, we'll start to see a lot of the change that we need to see in our country.
Yeah, no, I agree with you. But I mean, again, the, uh, I'll put it this way. Um, there's a reason why the Republicans are attacking AOC and Bernie Sanders not on there anymore. And I do think actually race does matter, uh, race, gender. And, um, you know, I, and I agree, Bernie would have won if he got the nomination. I, but I mean, I, I, I think it, it goes without saying, taking even AOC off of a woman of color that had something like Bernie Sanders politics, it would be much harder. It is easier, I, I believe, on that level for a white male older white male to deliver that kind of quote-unquote progressive message than say like a woman of color. And, and part of it is that's the, that's, that's the background. I'm not, and again, it's not a thing where I'm for or against it, but I understand those dynamics and why, for example, women of color, men of color might decide to soften our message kind of thing if we want to quote-unquote rise up in politics like with the Democratic Party. Because it's harder in that sense to have that kind of message. And you see it. Um, Kamala, I mean, it, and it's kind of it is that caricature. Trump is already blaming, you know, uh, calling her nasty and uh, like that she's this angry black woman, and it's like really it has nothing to do with her at all. But that's still the label she gets. Uh, just like that's the label Michelle Obama got. I mean, and it does hurt you politically. It can really hurt you in races, uh, especially the higher up you go. Um, and we'll see. Hopefully, that will. I would say this, like the whole thing about AOC, the thing I appreciate with her winning, of course, is breaking that ceiling. Like she did it on a congressional level. I'd love to see her run for Senate. Like someone with her kind of politics move up. I think it's possible, but um, it just hasn't happened. It's rarely ever happened. But you see, it's not, it doesn't, it, the move up is not a matter of policy. And that's the problem because you have Joe Biden, who has been the co signer of every piece of legislation that has moved forward our criminal justice system and has grown it since. And he also made policy with segregationists in the past. And so, you know, and then he gets awarded the nomination of the party and eventually the presidency. You have Hamilton Which is just insane. You have her career of, of being a top cop and she's awarded the VP slot. You know what I'm saying? But if you have people who have been consistent in their voting, have always been consistently on the right side of history, and they're marginalized and, and talked about as if they're crazy and their policies are weird, when they've been consistently on the right side of history their whole career. And so, like, I don't, yeah. I don't really understand why, what, where the promotion process comes from. Is this like, you know, you have these governors that are out there in the South where they have done these huge missteps. I mean, you talk about the governor of Virginia who was walking around in blackface and he gets awarded to be the governor. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't understand, like, in our in our politics, and then they tell you, oh, just get over it. Nobody is forgiving of the past. And, you know, how would you feel if somebody just never forgave you of your past? When I'm saying, like, look, that's a false, uh, uh, that's a false uh, equivalence. I don't, my, my, my decisions don't influence thousands of people's daily lives or the future of their children. You know, these people's decisions have negatively impacted the lives of not only the parents and the people that were living during that time, but the generations that are going to come after them because their children are probably be in the same impoverished situations that their decisions put those people in. Um, and we award them yeah. by giving them higher positions in office. And, and this was the argument with Hillary. People were so unforgiving and they couldn't move on. And all of a sudden we should be forgiving and move on. Yeah, with, but the... And, 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 you but know, the but the thing but the ultimately the rubber hits the road with 
just take the thing like the legislation the House has actually passed like the last four years, it's been blocked by the Senate, it hasn't gone anywhere. The, what I'm hoping, in a lot of that is very progressive legislation, if again the Democrats get the keys to the kingdom, are they going to pass that legislation? Because to me that's ultimately the most important part. I agree with you about certainly the analysis on the uh, executive level with, um, with, with Biden and then now with also Harris. Um, but again, the center of gravity, it really will be about those leadership and the jockeying for it. Who's going to be strongest in terms of negotiations, in terms of I, my guess is that the House has got is the best shot for the best legislation, the most progressive legislation, more than Schumer, Democratic Senate, uh, and certainly more than Biden presidency. So that to me is that's still an unknown. And that to me would be the best thing to hope for uh, at this point. If, again, we can get all the keys to the kingdom. Well, I think also, too, I think that we really need to look at the way that we do voting and how people can run for office. I've always yeah. been a fan of public uh, funding of elections. I mean, what we see now is, is that you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to even get the word out that you're running for office. I just realized that there's a black woman that's running for president right now. Um, uh, there's And these are all on other types of tickets. And because you don't have the money, you can't necessarily get yourself out there. And so we still get these wealthy people who have the money or come from these uh, uh, families who have been in office before running our country and you don't get the progressive voices that need to go in there that really speak to the will of the people. Um, and so I think that we really need to rethink not only um, our, the way we do voting, but the way uh, we fund uh, elections. Um, so like, I mean, yep. that right there would definitely change a lot of things. Yeah, F uh, yeah, fine goal finance, yeah. Um, um, it'll be interesting to see again what gets uh, put on there for the agenda, the priorities, because it's true. It's not just going to be in the, like the meat potato issues, healthcare, education, criminal justice, but also the whole election process. Hopefully, will be really uh, there'll be um, hopefully some leadership on there and some better legislation. Uh, it's true. Well, Barack Obama put it out there at John Lewis's funeral on some of the things that we can look at as it relates to yeah. voting. I mean, I, it's funny to see Barack Obama post-presidency outside of the party. He's able to say whatever the hell he wants to say now. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and you know, and I've always loved Barack Obama. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with him. Um, he was his my relationship with Barack Obama was kind of like my relationship with Sprint. You know, <laughs> it's just like it's a love-hate relationship. But um, Barack Obama, um, because he's not bound by all of his donors and uh, his constituencies. Uh, he was able to lay out some really good things that we should probably do as far as voting is concerned. And he said, I mean, if you really want to, like, uh, really remember the memory of John Lewis, um, you can name the legislation um, after him. Yeah, voting rights act. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You are listening to Alafia, Voices of the African Diaspora. We're live on Facebook today. We had a little hiccup there when somebody knocked down our podcast. But hey, we're at a few minutes away from the show. We've had really great, intense talk here with Alex from the East Coast and Dr. Fishman. And it's really been um, eye-opening, especially for me and hopefully for you listening to our show right now about the um, issues that we, we are different issues that we have with the current um, Democratic nominees for president. Uh, my biggest issue was 
why Joe Biden and all the amazing people, especially this time around, we had a lot of great people step up. I mean, it wasn't like the Trump elections where you were like, oh my gosh, is this all we have? Like, who are these people? Um, this time we had great people um, step up. And not just, you know, people that are like in the same age as Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. We had actually people, young, much younger people. And actually somebody accused at one of the debates, accused Joe Biden, or not accused, but tell him, hey, you know, I've been following you for 40 years and now I'm standing on the same stage and you're still running for office. So, um... <laughs> but, it's a, but again, it's very easy to answer that. He's obviously safe and comfortable and he literally ran as I'm friend with Obama. Obama loves me. I was yeah, so it, it was a shame that yeah, all the black people that ran or people of color like um, Curry um, that ran for office, um, they were not, they didn't get far or they didn't, you know, win the nomination. So it was sad to see um, with all the potential that uh, all the Democrats could come up with was uh, <clears throat> Joe Biden. Uh, Dr. Fishman, final thoughts and comments? No, it's a it's a good discussion, and I, I do think that uh, for me it really is about all three branches of uh, government and um, with the executive office that changing, but also hopefully the sh uh, power shifting in the, specifically the Senate, and then what would that will also mean for things like the Supreme Court. So in that sense, yeah, uh, put in that context, I think uh, Biden and Harris will be great. Um, and we need Pelosi to yeah. go on retirement so somebody else can step up. No, yeah. seriously. I mean, I, I know we have competent people in there. So, um, yeah. It's, and we obviously have to continue time. the street heat. Ultimately, the policy is going to be driven by the people on the street. And we've just got to continue to put that pressure and not get, you know, fat and happy with uh, Democrats getting the keys to the kingdom. And most of all, avoid the Jesus syndrome. Our Savior. Yeah. Biden is one man. Harris is one woman. They cannot fix hundreds of years of mess and madness. Not possible. So avoid that. We need to roll up our sleeves and get our hands in the dirt and get to work. It's a lot of work to do. Final thoughts, Alex, you want to talk about your podcast on Tuesday? <laughs> yeah, so I have a, a, a one minute that I do every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Uh, please look, uh, you can go on um, my Facebook page, is Alex Deering, um, or you can go on my YouTube, YouTube channel, um, it's Talks with Alex. Um, guys can see we're talking about the democratic convention next week i have uh people who worked in politics for a long time uh, across the spectrum we got moderates we got liberals and we're going to get out there and have a conversation about the state of our politics and it'll probably last for a little while um and so yeah guys please tune in and check us out all right thank you so much for being on our show today um this is the radio show alafia voices of the african diaspora live on Facebook, coming up soon on our podcast. Thank you all so much. We wish you a blessed, peaceful Sunday. From us to you, it is Alafia. Thank you.